once again. I'm so glad to have you here with us today. And uh, we're going to continue on in our study of the book of Philippians. So if you can find Philippians chapter 4, uh, that's where we're going to be studying this morning, looking at a few verses today. I was doing a little uh, reading, just some statistical data for you this morning to kind of get our minds thinking a little bit uh, before we get into our text. Go all the way back to the year 1900. Probably weren't around in 1900. But did you know that in 1900, 90% of American households did not have electricity and did not have a telephone? In 1915, just 15 years later, 90% of American households did not own an automobile. My daughter is doing some research for school on the Brooklyn Bridge and the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge that was originally built not for cars, it was originally built for pedestrians to be able to walk across because automobiles were not yet commonly used. To put that statistic, by the way, in a little bit of perspective, 60% of American families today own not one, but at least two cars. In 1930, 90% of American households did not have a washing machine or a refrigerator. 1945, 90% of American households did not have air conditioning. Now, right there is God's grace in my life. I could not have tolerated, I lived in Florida for a while, there's no way I could have tolerated Florida without air conditioning. In 1960, a little closer to our modern era, 90% of American households did not have a dishwasher or a color television. When I was a kid, I didn't know what a dishwasher was. I thought it was me. I didn't realize there was something that you could put dishes in and wash them electronically or whatever. Didn't know that. In 1990, 90% of Americans, okay, teens, are you ready for this one? 90% of Americans did not own a cell phone or have access to the internet. I haven't had many wonderful moments as a parent, but I had one, at least one. Jonathan asked me one time, well, Dad, I think I should get my first cell phone the same age you were when you got yours. I said, 35 is fine with me, totally fine. Did not exist. Think about conveniences that that have become a reality even since the year 2000. Kindles iPods, use mine all the time. iPhones were not created until 2007. Flash drives, Bose noise-canceling earphones, another act of God's mercy and grace. Xbox did not exist until 2002. Now, this is actually defunct, but Blackberries did not exist until after 2000. So we think about, I was watching a lady the other day um, back her car in to a parking space right in front of me. And it was clear that she had a camera in her car to back up because she was backing up looking this way. And she ended up in the space this way. And I thought to myself, remember the good old days when you knew how to back up vehicles by using your mirrors and looking? The world has changed. You might say it this way, how far we've come. And yet, we are less content than ever. 
The more convenient our world has become, contentment seems to be more elusive, doesn't it? I mean, let's face it, how many of you right now have iPhone, whatever current number we're on, I don't have one, 10? Jonathan, what number are we on? 12. How many, is that brand new, like just came out? Okay, so iPhone 12. How many of you have an 11 in your pocket saying, man, I got to get to 12, my life just isn't going to be right. How am I going to keep on living if I don't get to 12? The more technologically advanced our culture has come, it has not resolved the heart issue of covetousness. It has not resolved the heart issue of discontentment. By the way, the same discontentment that resonated in the hearts of Adam and Eve, even when the world was perfect, God wasn't enough. Even in God's perfect creation, there was something in them, and the devil knew that if he played on their sense of discontentment, that he could lure them away. And ever since that time, we are discontented people. In fact, our economy thrives on your discontent. Your adver- the advertisements that you watch every single day try very hard to capitalize on your insatiable desire to have more, something better, something faster, something prettier, something smaller, something novel. We have to have it. Our culture, our, our economy thrives on your discontentment. Here's the other problem. We'll get to our text in just a moment. But the other problem is our relentless comparison to other people and what they have and what I deserve. Those two things don't often match up. I was thinking about last week's sermon, as I do every Sunday afternoon. You kind of analyze what you said, what you didn't say. And I said last week that sometimes in the morning I get wrapped up in these conversations with other people. And that really isn't true. The conversation is usually I wrap up in a conversation with me. And I'm thinking about all of my inadequacies and my imperfections and my bizarreness. In fact, sometimes in our discontentment, here's what feeds it. We think things like this. If I only had the mind of Albert Einstein, I would be brilliant and get into an Ivy League college. If I only had the artistic ability of Picasso, I could create masterpieces. If I only had the musical talent of Mozart, I could write music that would last for generations. If I only had the imagination of Mark Twain, I could write books that would make me a revered writer. Oh, if I only had the acting ability of Denzel Washington, then I could be an award-winning actor. If I had the athleticism of Barry Sanders, I could humiliate even the best defenses. Here's reality. For me, I have average intelligence at best. I have the artistic ability of a three-year-old. I have average music talent, perhaps slightly above average writing capability, limited acting ability, although I'm pretty convinced I could play a really good bad guy. I think I could be a pretty good villain. My athletic ability used to be above average, and now it's gone. And so our dreams may not be that big, but very often we 
we compare ourselves to other people and we look at what they have and we look at what we don't have. We look at their intelligence, their artistic ability, their music ability, their writing ability, their acting ability, their whatever ability. And very often we look at others and we come to the realization we just don't match up. And sometimes the, the reality is we are drawn away in our own selfishness and sinfulness and discontentment rages in our hearts. Came across a story about a rich man one day, an industrialist, who was disturbed to find a young fisherman sitting lazily beside his boat late one morning. Why aren't you out there fishing, the rich man asked. Because I've caught enough fish for the day, replied the young fisherman. Well, why don't you go out and catch more fish than you need, the rich man asked. What would I do with them, the young fisherman asked. Well, you could make more money. You could buy a better boat so that you could go out in deeper waters and you could catch more fish. You could even purchase nylon nets and catch even more fish and make even more money. And soon you'd have an entire fleet of boats and be rich just like me. The young man looked at the industrialist and said, well, then what would I do? Well, you could sit down and enjoy your life, the entrepreneur said. The fisherman looked at the rich man and said, what do you think I'm doing right now? Contentment is elusive, isn't it? And how can we be content? Maybe you're wondering this. How can we be content in a nation that is in absolute disarray and potential crisis? Well, I would argue that very often, normally, contentment is elusive because we look for it in the wrong places. Money, position, prestige, relationship. Freedom from difficulties, freedom from problems. Benjamin Franklin said it this way. He said, content makes poor men rich. Discontentment makes rich men poor. So maybe you're wrestling this morning with a discontented heart. Well, let me encourage you today with Philippians 4, beginning in verse 10. Paul says this. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Now that I am, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then arguably one of the top two or three most misquoted verses in the entire Bible. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's misquoted right up there with where two or three are gathered together in his name. Two of the I would argue, misquoted, misused verses in all of Scripture. We'll talk about that when we get there. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Paul here is going to show us, demonstrate for us, that the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding can certainly be ours. 
And part of the way that we accomplish this peace is through developing a contented heart. Contentment, by the way, is not complacency. It doesn't mean that we don't press on in our in our developing our abilities. It doesn't mean that we don't press on in becoming more like Christ. One writer said it this way, we need to learn to be content with what we have, but never with what we are. In other words, developing our giftedness, developing those things that God has given to us. We celebrated Thanksgiving this week. Thanksgiving comes each and every year on the fourth Thursday of November, year after year after year after year. And yet, maybe Thanksgiving felt a little strange for you this year, maybe a little disheartening. Maybe you didn't get to spend time with family the way you usually do. And yet, in a normal year, and even in this year, Thanksgiving is meant to serve as a reminder, an Ebenezer, as we studied last week. It's it's supposed to draw our attention to the many blessings that we had this year. And yet, in 2020, maybe you spent more time worrying about the political situation in our culture. It's divided us, troubled us, angered us, exhausted us. Maybe you spent more time worrying about the pandemic that's left you anxious and irritable and isolated, grumbling. And yet contentment and gratefulness is possible even in the midst of a dark and despairing time. I have this statement later in the notes, but I'll say it here because it's probably worth repeating a couple of times. We're all so eager for 2020 to be gone. Let me ask you a question. What are you going to do if 2021 is worse? We, we have this illusion that magically in January 1 of 2021 that everything is going to be better. It might stink next year. I mean, look at the global stage that we're in. You could have an all-out war by the end of next year. Who knows what the next 12 months hold except for God? The question is, are you going to live in this world with a content heart? And you may say to yourself, that's impossible. We can't do that. Let's keep in mind for just a moment that Paul, when he writes this section, is not living in a palace. He's living in a prison. His character is being assassinated by the pastors in Rome. They're questioning him. They're slandering against him. Many people, most people, if not the majority, have abandoned him. He's alone. He's possibly going to die. He has very little food. He has very few comforts of this world. And yet Paul says, I have learned to be content. How do you do it? Well, let's take a look this morning. Number one, the first key to learning contentment is found and learning to praise God. Notice verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. We know, we've been studying this book for a while, that this idea of rejoicing is really the theme of this book. And Paul says it once again, that he is rejoicing greatly 
in the Lord. He doesn't say that he's rejoicing in his circumstances. He's saying that I am finding a reason to praise and to rejoice in the unchanging, unalterable Lord. Now, he goes on in this verse. It's kind of a lengthy verse. He says, he says you have re- revived your concern for me. You have indeed you, ha- you were indeed concerned for me, but you have had no opportunity. Now, what Paul is talking about here, this is not a rebuke, by the way. What Paul is referencing here is that for a period of time, the Philippian church had been a church that was giving to the needs of Paul. They had supported his missionary efforts. It's much like us here at Grace. We support missionaries that are serving the Lord all over this world. And so Paul is saying to them that there had been a long history of the Philippian church giving financial support to Paul, helping Paul, and he basically says that there has been a long time since you have helped me. Now, again, this isn't a rebuke, and there's there's many possibilities as to why this is true, but basically Paul says this general statement. He says, you had no opportunity to help me. You had a desire to help. You had the heart to help. You just didn't have an opportunity to help. Now, what does he mean? Well, we don't really ultimately know exactly. But it might be that Paul didn't have any significant needs for a period of time. It may be that there was a time in Paul's life that generally things were, his needs were being met, the things in his life were being taken care of, or I would argue more possibly that the Philippian church didn't know where to get help to Paul. They didn't know where he was. They didn't know exactly what his needs were. It wasn't that they had lost heart for Paul or lost care for Paul. It may very well be that they were willing to help him, but where is he? Don't know. But now that they realize where he is, they are sending help and concern, and they are once again sending aid to him. By the way, writers argue that there had been several years that they had not had opportunity to help Paul. But Paul is rejoicing even in the midst of his imprisonment. The gospel had moved forward even though he was in prison. There was tangible demonstration of the gospel taking root in the hearts of of people's lives, even within Philippi, even those that were within the prison system that Paul found himself. But there was another reason that Paul could rejoice as he is writing this letter and he's writing to these believers. Notice he continues to talk about their concern for him. So when Paul says, I am rejoicing in the Lord, I would say that part of this rejoicing that was in the Lord that Paul felt for, uh, for his, in his life was primarily for the people at Philippi. There was a very real sense that Paul was also rejoicing in the friendship, the relationships that Paul had with the people of Philippi. Now let's let's stop there for a minute. In our in our culture that revolves around the accumulation of things, new things, better things, faster things, shinier things, whatever it may be, whatever appeals to your senses. Very often 
we blow right past something that's even more important and actually a real source that leads us to rejoicing in the Lord, and that is the people that God puts into our lives. Part of Paul's issue here is he's sitting there completely in destitution. He has no money. He has no possessions. He might have a few clothes. He's got a couple of quills. He's got a couple of, you know, a little bit of parchment to write. He has nothing, but he has relationships. And he has these people that when he thinks about them, their help, their concern, their ministry toward the apostle Paul. And so Paul says, I am rejoicing in the Lord. But man, when I think on the people of Philippi, there is this sense of love and compassion. I love to spend time with missionaries. I love to spend time in other cultures. I haven't had time, opportunity to do that for a long time, but I love it when missionaries come, especially missionaries that didn't grow up in our country. And it's always interesting to hear their perspective. I have one, one or two very close friends that are missionaries, and they all say this. They say, you know, the problem with the American church is that it has become a corporation more than a body. That pastors have become CEOs over organizations more than they are shepherds over the body of Christ. And folks, I think we've got to be honest and say, yeah, sure. But the Philippian church understood that a church is people, it's relationships. And sometimes in our discontentment, we become even discontent with the people that God puts into our lives. And yet the Apostle Paul was thankful to the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, thinking on these people of Philippi, and rejoicing in these relationships. Much of what we worry about in our culture is worthless and non-essential. John Maxwell said it this way. He said, you cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. Contentment in life is found when we keep these non-essentials in perspective. I, I was, I was uh, out uh, this week and I was, I was parked in a parking lot talking to a friend. And I'm sitting there in my car and this guy comes up to the side of me. The other passenger side of my car and he knocks on my window. Well, my car doesn't have power anything. So I have to lean across, you know, and roll, crank down the window. And he says, hey, do you see my truck right behind you? I said, oh, yeah, yeah I see it. And he said, well, can you, can you back out without hitting it or should I move it? I said, oh, I, it's fine. I said, I don't hit it very hard. He didn't think that was funny. I, see, you thought it was funny. I thought it was pretty funny too. And he was like, he looked at me like, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to hit your car, I, I promise. And, and I love stories like that because it's like when I say, please hit my car, please. I, I don't care. It's a piece of junk. Don't worry about that. Non-essential. I can walk to work, ride a bike to work. It's not essential. But man, we worry about things and possessions. Don't take it, don't steal it, don't hit it. It was a nice truck, by the way. Certainly glad I didn't hit it. I don't want to go through the insurance battle with that. But Paul says, not only that, he talks about this concern, and he says that you were concerned, but you had no opportunity. At length, you have revived your concern. Notice that word, revived. It's 
flourishing. It's been rejuvenated. This is an interesting word. It's actually a horticulture term. It means to blossom again like a perennial plant. This is given time. It's been dormant, not because they didn't want to, because they didn't have opportunity. And he says, this is coming back to life. When you've learned of my needs, you are coming alongside of me once again, and you're giving me this help and this, and this support that I so greatly need. And what a wonderful picture of relational intimacy, friendship. You see, often in our life, we worry about things, possessions, to the neglect of developing relationships around us. And so we have to understand that if we are going to be content people, we start by praising God, praising him for the people that God has put into our lives. I, I, I say this all the time. I was talking to one of my kids about this this week. I don't remember who. It doesn't matter who. We were talking about the different places that, we, that, that my wife and I have lived. We've lived in several. And one of them said, well, how'd you like living in Florida? And I was like, I didn't. But I miss it because I miss the people. The people that God brings into the geographical location, who cares? What, what matters is developing those kinds of relationships. And the Apostle Paul understood the value of that. And so he says, I can praise God for your care and for your relationship. But let me give you a second key to contentment. And this is maybe a little bit more where we struggle. Contentment is found in being satisfied with God's provisions. Notice what he says in verses 11 and 12. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need. It's like, I don't need anything. Paul says, when I talk about this opportunity that you now have, it's been revitalized in your heart. He says, I don't have a need. Why? Because I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. The secret the secret to contentment. Here it is. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This is where our struggle is battled, is where our struggle is fault. He doesn't want anyone to misunderstand what he's just said. He's not implying that he had a particular need that they didn't meet. He's not saying that. But he's talking about this contentment. Autarkis is the word in Greek. This is an interesting word, by the way. It, here's the original meaning of the word. It meant to be sufficient for oneself, strong enough or processing enough to be, to be in any need of aid or support, independent, external from, from external circumstances. Now, initially, this word actually carried the idea of being self-sufficient or self-reliant. It's not how Paul's using this word, however. In fact, we're going to argue the opposite. He is talking about learning to be reliant and sufficient in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me, not in my own ability. Instead, Paul is using this word to talk about being content with one's lot, one's means, what God has provided for you. 
I, I would argue that if I was doing a word selection on this word, I would translate it as satisfied. That I have absolute satisfaction, that I can be content with what God has given to me and what God has provided. Now, notice that Paul says here, he says that I have learned this through life experience. He says in verse 12, I have been instructed. I have learned. It's the word muo, which means to be initiated into mysteries, to be taught, to have full instruction of something that I didn't previously understand. And so when Paul tells them, when he says that I am not speaking in need, I have learned through circumstances of life how to be content. I don't think any of us are born naturally contented people. I think over time, it is something that like the Apostle Paul, life becomes our schoolmaster and we begin to understand how to be content in all circumstances, how we can experience life in a way that we are content. Notice what Paul says. He says, I know how to be humbled. I know how to be in need, Paul says. I know how to be short on supplies. I know how to be financially in need. I, I can remember my, my last year of seminary. My, my wife had an incredible job in Philly. Incredible. We made a very healthy salary. We were unlike many of the other seminarians that were kind of struggling financially. We, we actually did pretty well. The joke in seminary was you have a, you know, you have a BMW car payment with no car. It's expensive. So we went from making very good living to our first ministry position in Orlando, making $30,000 a year. We took a $70,000 a year pay cut. And I remember going, how's this going to work? Because for our family, we decided Michelle was going to stay home with our kids. She wasn't going to work. This wasn't going to happen. So her job was to prevent cash from going out of the house. There wasn't much cash to go out of the house. But we bought a home. We drove beater vehicle. We did whatever we had to do. And we never went without the necessities of life, not one time. In, in fact, God met those needs miraculously on more than one occasion. And so Paul says, look, I, I know how to be content even when I go to the refrigerator and I open it and all that's there is a little bit of bread and some milk. I, I can still be content with that. But here's the other trick. Paul says, not only did I learn in life how to be content when I was in a time of need, he says, I also had to learn how to be content in times when things were good, when things were plenteous, when I was experiencing prosperity, when I had abundance. Now, if we're living in a time of need, we may look at those that have a, an abounding you know, amount of money or whatever, and we think, well, certainly they are content. Really? Really? How, how many people who make a lot of money do you know that are really content? Because very often, and that's not a, I don't mean that to be ugly toward people, I'm not saying that, there are certainly people that are, 
But very often when we make more money, I've seen, and my, not me making the money, but seeing people, the more people make, the more they want. And very often it feeds even more discontentment. And so Paul says, in every circumstances, whether I'm full or hungry, whether I am abounding or I'm suffering from need, Paul says, I know how to experience contentment because I have learned in whatever state I am in, I can be content because I am resting in the goodness of God. And it's tempting for us to believe that if we get a raise, we'll be content. If we get a new job, we'll be content. Get married, we'll be content. Move to another city, we'll be content. And yet, when we look at the Apostle Paul, we find that he was satisfied and content with very, very little. As I mentioned, he had very few belongings, he had very few clothes. He had some writing utensils, some parchment, measly meals that were just enough to sustain him. He didn't have his freedom. And yet, he was able to be content. And so whatever God provided for the Apostle Paul, that was enough. He had experienced times when he had three Wonderful meals during the course of a day. He had times that he was deprived of every comfort that was known to humanity. And Paul understood what it meant to be in physical need. Think of a couple of verses very quickly. 1 Timothy 6, 8. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. I love Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Just give me enough, God. Because contentment can be challenging if I'm poor. Contentment can be challenging if I am rich. Contentment can be challenging in every space in between. And that's why, as we find throughout Scripture, to be content with what the Lord has provided. When I was in seminary, I've been thinking about those years for some reason this week. When I was in seminary, we lived in an old farmhouse. Uh, we lived in suburban Philadelphia, and uh, this house had been there for a very long time. In fact, the house was built on a, on a uh, land grant that was given to the original owning family of that farm by a man, you might have heard of this guy, by a man by the name of William Penn. And so we got to live in this really cool farmhouse. We had this huge yard that I got to mow as offset some of our rent. And around us was this wonderful housing development. And so I would walk in the afternoons, I would get off seminary at noon, and then I would have a couple of hours for I to be at the hospital to go to work. So I would walk through this neighborhood. And there was inevitably a for sale sign somewhere on, on a house, and this one house caught my attention, and I'd walk by it, and I saw the realtor's name. He was a popular guy in that part of uh, Montgomery County at the time, and I saw this guy's name on the sign. You'd see his name all over the place. Well, I'm at the hospital one night taking care of this lady, and I'm, there's a, a family member in the room with this lady, and I asked, got into the conversation with this gentleman, and I asked him his name. 
Well, his name was the realtor that had all these houses for sale all over the place, and this one particular house right behind my house. So I said to him, I said, hey, man, what is that house? And I gave him the address. He goes, oh, yeah, I listed that house. I know that house. I said, what's that house selling for? And he told me the price. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah. I don't remember what it was, but it was astronomical. And I said, let me ask you a question. I said, how do people afford houses like that? He said, they don't. I said, what do you mean? He goes, are you really, this is what he said. He goes, are you really that naive? He said, both husband and wife work. They are head over heels in debt. If one of them loses their job or something happens in the economy, they're going to tank. So they can't afford that house. They, they're living in house way beyond their means. They're scraping by. And I remember, Michelle and I talk about this often. It's like, I will never live like that. My, my dream house is a 1,500-square-foot house on the top of a mountain overlooking a valley. That's my dream house. And yet we sometimes get ourselves all worked up into this desire to have more things, more possessions. I used to say this. I've had to change this through the years. I used to say, when I get older, everything that I own will fit in my backpack. It's probably not realistic, so I said it could all fit in the back of a pickup truck. That'll work. Contentment, it's found being satisfied with what God has provided. Number three, and very quickly, contentment is found in relying on God for strength to be content. Here it is, folks. One of the most misused verses in all of Scripture Paul says, I have learned the secret. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Three most important things about any Bible verse is the context, the context, and the context. Paul is talking about the strength that we need, the divine strength from God to be content. And I want to spend a moment on this because very often we rip this verse right out of its context and we apply it to all kinds of stuff. I have stood over, I don't know, four or 500 pounds in front of me that I was going to deadlift quoting, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I pull and I pull and that doesn't even move. Or maybe you've experienced something like this. There's a job that you want. Maybe... There's two people applying for one position. And both people going into the interview are praying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This job is mine. And they go in and they interview and two people, one job, one gets the job. And they go to their car saying, praise God, he answered my prayer. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God, you're so good. And the other guy gets in his car and says, God, I prayed I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me, and you disappointed me. You failed me. I can't trust you. That is a misapplication of this verse. He's not saying that you can do superhuman things like I can trust Christ to touch the ceiling or to jump off a building and fly. 
He's saying, I have learned through the power of Christ, I can do all things. I can be poor, I can be rich. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me to be content. That's what he's talking about. Why? Because contentment is not part of who you are. We are sinners who have a sin nature to be discontent. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit of God to bring us this supernatural contentment that we can experience this kind of attitude that the Apostle Paul experienced. We live in a country obsessed with the American dream, don't we? But you have to remember that money does not equal contentment. Contentment comes when we praise God. Contentment comes when we find strength in Christ. Contentment becomes a reality when we rely on God for his gracious provisions. Jeremy Burroughs said it this way. He said, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I ask you again, what if next year is worse? What then? You see, gratitude and contentment isn't reserved for when things are good. Most of us experience very little pain and uncertainty when we compare ourselves to the Apostle Paul. And yet, how many of us grumble through our days, thankless, resentful, disappointed, angry, that God hasn't given me what I deserve? I want more. I want better. I want faster. I want shinier. I want prettier. I want better than you gave me, God. That's the attitude of a discontented person. That's the attitude of most of us, isn't it? Don't we all struggle with the discontentment that rots our souls? Here's the reality for you and for me. We would experience a lot more joy and be a lot less irritable if we would just learn to be content. As it was said, if I have Christ and I have nothing else, I have every reason to be content. Because he is enough. Content person is a joyful person. Content person creates joyful relationships. So the key to contentment really is living, it's simple to say, but hard to live. It really is Christ-centered living. That's what the Apostle Paul did. Even in times of trouble, his life was about the one who could strengthen him to say, I can do all things in Christ. I can abound or I can be in need, but I can be content because I have him. Let's pray.
Father, I I thank you for uh, these verses that are certainly a challenge to each and every one of us. It's so, so tempting to see what others have and believe we deserve it. See the things that our, our culture throws our way, bigger, better, faster. And yet, in our, our hearts, we, we know we'll never be satisf- satisfied with the things of this world. We have to learn, as the Apostle Paul did, as he said, life has taught me. I've learned how to be content. And I don't think any of us have perfectly learned that. We are learning that. And Lord, strip away from us those things in our lives that keep us from experiencing this kind of contentment. We know that your word promises that you will meet our needs. You will provide for us the things that we we need day by day. And teach us, Lord, to be content with what we need to survive. Not with every want, not with every desire, not with everything that our eyes see. But Lord, I pray that you would help us, God, to be content with what you give us. Lord, we thank you for the finished work of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that we can find this kind of contentment through your strength and through your power. So Lord, teach us to be people that are content with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Hope you have a wonderful day. We'll see you next Sunday.